0: Here we go. Rejecting the screen. Noah Kozlov, Adam Stenko, Allah abdul When you look it up the NBA history alphabetically, the first player in NBA history, the 25th overall pick, 1990. Out of Duke by the Portland Trailblazers, five years in the NBA, an 86 McDonald's All-American, part of some all-time college basketball games. And now you see him all the time as the Philadelphia 76ers TV analyst. Ala. I read an article from the daily press when you're in college that said <laughs> we can't fit. Basically it said, we can't figure them out. Speaking of you and said that you could, you could turn out to be quote the tallest onion farmer. What
1: was going on in college? Uh, well, the onion farmer part, I have no idea. Um, but I can tell you that uh, it's not everything worked out when I first got there. Um, You know, you get into a situation where you're at Duke and there's guys in front of you and things aren't, uh, they don't go as you plan. And uh, that's when you get tested, basically. And you find out what you're made of. And I can say, quite honestly, the first couple of years when I got there did not go as planned.
0: How did Coach K test you specifically? Do you remember remember certain instances and
1: stories? Oh, sure. I mean, there there are tons of instances and stories. I, I mean... The, the, the thing that I, I guess I could have seen coming or handled better or was when you're young and you're still working your way up, you're expendable. And he's trying to mold you still. And I kind of, I don't know if I took it personally, took it the wrong way. Um, you know, but there were times, I'll give you an example. <laughs> there was a time when I walked into the basketball office. It was maybe our mail used to get, Sent there. So instead of going to the student union with the rest of the student body, our mail got sent to the basketball office on purpose. So we would, you know, kind of walk in and just check in with the office every day so they'll see our faces. Um, And so I remember going in to pick up my mail and there were some fans there. And I walked in and the fans were visiting, I believe, from Virginia. It was a mom and a dad and a daughter and a son and they were young. And coach had come out to greet them as I was walking in and he couldn't have been nicer to them. He couldn't have been nicer to me and took me by the arm and introduced me and talked about how happy and proud he was of me. (laughs) Um, And then. I grab my mail and then I walk over to the locker room. And about ten minutes later, I see him and the guy walk right by me without saying a word. <laughs> and, I, and I just remember thinking, like, wait a second—ten minutes ago, I was the greatest thing since sliced bread. Now that there's nobody around, he walked right by me. He didn't even acknowledge me, Noah. So that was the—that uh, was the part um, that kind of messed with your head a little bit. Looking back on it now, I get it. But back then, I didn't get it at all. And I think maybe I may have been a little too sensitive uh, for Coach's tactics. But at the same time, we got through it.
2: That's some of the stuff that gives you an indication of, I guess, the cutthroat way that, that Coach K could be. What about the uh, mentoring or uplifting, the the emotional part of Coach K? What What of that did you see? Oh. <laughs> well, I can
1: give you an example. There was there, there was a game on the other day. Um, it was us at Virginia my senior year, Bobby Hurley's senior year now with all of this craziness going on. They're showing old games a lot more. Um, and this was an old blast from the past. And um, we lost that game at UVA. And what I remember about that game was I, I played well. Uh, I don't know if I had 17 or 18 points, I played okay, I, we didn't win, so obviously didn't play well enough, um, and we always used to drive up to Virginia, because it was only about a three-hour ride, right up Route 29 through Greensboro, and then into Durham, and I remember getting in, and it was around, there was a nine o'clock game, so we probably got in around three o'clock in the morning, 3.30 in the morning, something like that and the lights are for Cameron were on, <laughs> which which never happens. Usually the bus pulls up to Cameron and we disperse. The last thing he leaves us with is dressed and ready. It's like whatever, 2.45, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, whenever the next practice is that we will be meeting up as a group. Well, we could sense something was different when the lights are on, because it's 3 o'clock in the morning, it's pitch black in Durham, but yet Cameron's lights are on and. He comes to the back of the bus and says, dressed and ready in 15 minutes. Oh. So, oh, I think I played 37 minutes that night. Bob logged 38. Christian might have had 34, 36. Um, but that didn't matter to him because that was the first time we had lost to UVA in like 11 times. Um, So he did not take that well. And he wanted us to know that he was not digesting that well. So needless to say, it wasn't a very... um productive practice but it was memorable because we ran a lot
0: well what was the recruiting process like with him
1: well he was thorough um and and there were times remember i told you about the tough times when i first got there um i don't know he would use it as motivation he would use it as just a source of um connection between him and i he saw me himself 60 times personally um, I only know that because he'd pull out the file and tell me about it whenever 60? he got mad at me sixty six 60. zero which yeah, which- then that's just him, not to mention the assistant coaches at the time, Bob Bender and Chuck Swenson, who I saw probably twice as much um, but I don't know if you're allowed to do that now with just the way the schedule breaks down and the way rules are nowadays. I don't know if you're allowed to have that no. many visits with a guy. I don't think you can, but back then it was allowed. Um, and he, yeah, he was, he made you feel important. Um, and that's kind of one of the reasons, one of the big reasons why I wound up going there, because I did feel like besides the fact that he talked to me differently than everyone else, he talked to me like my dad. When other guys, other coaches, I'm not going to name names, sounded like used car salesmen just trying to tell you whatever they thought you wanted to hear. Um, Coach wasn't like that, and I think that's one of the reasons why, and along with the
2: way they treated me. The year before you go there, Duke plays in the national championship game. What's it like as a fan, as you're watching this game, knowing that you're going to be part of that team next year?
1: Um, It's crazy. It happened to me going to the pros, too. I get to the Trailblazers, who lose the previous year while I'm in college, to the Pistons, and I'm watching that. yeah, it, it, it's interesting because when you're watching the Duke team, I remember watching them all season long, obviously, now that I had committed and knew that's where my future was. Um, they came to play in the Big Apple NIT at the beginning of the year, um, against, and won against Kansas, and they practiced at my high school. So throughout the whole season, I mean, I was tightly connected to the team and then to have them come play in the Meadowlands for the East regionals and the East regional final was against Navy with David Robinson. Um, I remember being on the floor after they won that game and then heading into the locker room after that game and thinking, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I picked a heck of a horse, you know, because mm-hmm. the team that I picked in June was really good against Larry Brown's team in Kansas in the garden and the big apple in it, but then they go 37 um, and three and I just kept on thinking somewhere along the line they were going to change their mind. or like, we're too good for this guy now. We're going to go get other people. Um, But they didn't change their mind, and it was a fun ride up until Never Nervous Purvis went out of his mind.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right, right. That 1990 tournament, the Elite Eight overtime game against UConn in your hometown. So one, how many family and friends did you have there? And then you go out there with 27, 14, and two blocks. And then that was the... So the 79-78 game, for folks who don't know, that was the Leitner shot before the shot that we see all the time in 92, and you were in the pros. That was that was the first Leitner shot. Take us through what you remember leading into that game, playing in front of, I'm sure, so many family and friends, and then what the locker room was like when you advanced to the Final Four.
1: Well, I can tell you, though that I had played um, – this is just how fortunate Duke was – every time we had gone to the Final Four – We always had to play our regionals in Jersey, Um, and that sounds great for a guy who grew up in Jersey. Get to play in your backyard in some pretty big games. The problem was I stunk it up the first two years. I just couldn't. I just yeah exactly. I just (laughs) couldn't. I didn't kill us. I just did not play like the twenty-seven and fourteen. You can say are my standards too high? I don't know. I didn't hurt us because we won through every one of those games that we played in the Eastern Regional. Uh, to get to the Final Four, but you always want to play well. You always want to stand out in front of your home crowd. Um, Might there be some added pressure and some distractions? I think so, and I might have been too immature to handle it as a young kid. Um, But by the time my senior year came, there was really not much to lose. I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew that to get to where I wanted to be, I had to play well in those games. I remember getting 86 ticket requests. which is which is a lot um and I remember that adding a little bit more pressure too because I remember the night before finally adding it up and calling the secretary and thinking to myself man that's just more people that are going to see you stink it up tomorrow if you don't bring it um and then (laughs) and then things just fell into place you know I think I think the biggest difference and I'd love to take all the credit myself but when you play with a guy like Bobby Hurley um it was his first year with us and things just are different when you can break apart a press and it just kind of spoon feed you the rest of the way which is what he did basically uh he got me going early and then the rest was just up to me and um yeah we UConn was a good team but they were guard oriented and we were able to take take advantage of our size
2: so you mentioned Bobby Hurley and and the importance that how important he was to that to that Duke team even as a freshman but you guys playing the national championship game and there's so much talk about Hurley being sick throughout, and of course, UNLV, that, that uh, notorious amoeba defense. Um, what, what was the story? What did you know about about how sick Bobby was at that time?
1: Well, I didn't know a lot. I knew he wasn't feeling well because I, I know him. Um, you know, He's a Jersey guy like I am. I think I've known him since he was nine through his dad and his brother Danny, who's a little younger. Um, I've known those guys for a long time. So when you know someone, you know when they're right and when they're not right, especially when you've seen them in the tunnel as you're heading out. You know what faces to look for. And Bob didn't look right. To the extent I didn't know, I didn't know that it was something that was going to be bothering him so much during the game. I, I remember one time we're in a huddle. <laughs> it's the first quarter, a first half, I should say. And we're in a huddle, us five, out on the floor. And I look over one of my teammates' shoulders, and I see Bob running into the tunnel, like into the locker room. And I just remember thinking, "Where is he going right now?" Like, I didn't <laughs> know. I didn't know how bad it was. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, just seeing how his—he he was pale to begin with. He was even more pale during that game. <laughs> and the, the ability to, not, I guess, not hold things down. Um, the old phrase it was coming out of both ends. Apparently, oh, that's, uh, that's what it was. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, I can't imagine. I can't imagine no. because talk about like the worst timing ever. Oh. You don't get, you don't get redos. You don't get to say, "Hey, Larry, LJ, would you guys mind if we just waited till this guy's stomach settled down a little bit?" It doesn't work that way. Um, he got so a redo, talk-
2: incredibly though.
1: Yeah. Well, they. I. I wish I was there on that next year because that was a satisfying thing to watch. Um, but, yeah, it, I, I think we would have been better because he was just unbelievable that whole tournament. UConn was the number one team in the country. I know I know, UNLV was really good. They were better the next year. But that UConn team with that full-court press, Bobby tore that up by himself. And then we mm-hmm. played Arkansas in the semifinal game, you know, 40 minutes of hell. And he ripped them apart, too. By himself, like yeah, we had other good players, but talk about the pressure that they applied. We just got the ball in bounds and let him do his thing. We had no like press breaking strategies or tactics or plays. It was get the ball into number eleven and get the hell out of the way. And then you see how important he was when he wasn't right against UNLV. I'm not saying we would have beat them, but it would have been a better game.
0: So, so you mentioned that UConn team again. Two, two more on that on that team. Did you think often after that about, I mean, you almost had the game winner in regulation. So how often did you think about, even though you guys ended up winning, but how often did you replay that in your mind that, that you could have been the, the hero for sure. And then also it was Leitner who had the game winner and the play call was special. Can you yep. run us through exactly what, what the play is, how you had practice it? Had it ever worked before?
1: Well, we've ran it a couple times before. Never, Noah, in a situation like that. But having run it before, all he needed to do was just say special. And what special is, is it's basically a quick read when they're not covering the inbound guy. So if the inbound man is uncovered, sort of like Grant was against right. uh, Kentucky, but at a different distance and a different dynamic, because we are in the half court, we we're in the front court, um, the special was to get it inbounds and get it right back to Christian he was the inbound guy so that's exactly what we did we coach K noticed that they weren't playing them special everybody knew what that was the funny thing is if you look at the, re- the replay I'm underneath the basket I don't hear special so I'm thinking it's gonna go and we're gonna get a, a shot off to Phil because that was what the play was for but like I said the ad lib the impromptu the audible whatever you want to call it Coach with the recognition, and then we executed.
0: Have you since thought about what if your shot at the end of regulation in uh, had gone oh, in and would have yeah. been the game winner?
1: Absolutely, I thought it. What I loved is he gave me the chance because you, coaches. You, I mean, you you guys know this. You've seen enough basketball. On any particular night, unless you have a superstar like a Larry Bird or if you have like a Charles Barkley or a Michael Jordan, coaches go with the hot the hot handed guy the guy who's rolling right now. And that was me up until that point. So coming out of that timeout or going into that timeout, I kind of had a sense it was coming to me and it was just an easy lob from the baseline on the inside. And I hit it too hard off the glass. Um, yeah, I think about it every once in a while. I think I would think about it more if we would have lost. Um, yeah, yeah for the, sure. But the, but the fact that we won helped me uh, get over that quick, but yeah, I mean, when your number is called, you want to, you want to deliver.
2: I went back and looked just in total of your college career, freshman year, you guys lose to Indiana in the NCAA tournament. They win the national championship. Sophomore year, Kansas, they win the national championship. Junior year, Seton Hall, they're only the runners up. And then in 1990, obviously, UNLV in the national championship game, like, how much did you guys talk about the idea you were snake bitten as you w- would watch each of these teams go and and advance to win the title?
1: You know what? I don't think I don't think we felt that way. Um, I, I mean, you guys had also asked me about what it felt like after winning that the, the the final four game and knowing that you're heading to the to the to the final four, the elite eight game, I should say, mm-hmm. knowing you're going to the final four. I just remember sitting on that plane in Newark Airport as we're heading back. And looking at each other going, man, we're doing this for the third year in a row. Like nobody at that moment thought about the past failures. Because Mm -hmm. I think in the grand scheme of things, when you're watching, what, 351 teams play every year and then you only wind up with four. And you happen to be one of them for three years in a row. I know guys that I grew up with that played college ball that never even went to the NCAA tournament. Right. Let alone gone to the NCAA tournament and then make it to one final four let alone three so we used to marvel just like everybody else we I remember sitting on that tarmac going man I cannot believe we're actually going to go do this again (laughs) um so you don't think about the the negative the negative parts that one time when I was in Denver for my senior year's final four that I think of the past final fours and you know falling short
0: we're going to get to your NBA career in a moment but I know you guys at Duke all get together often when When there is a large group of you together, who's the alpha? Who's the one that still everybody looks to to start the conversation or tell a story?
1: Well, uh, alpha in personality-wise and alpha in reputation and like um, stature are two different things. Because the biggest alpha, I would probably say, is Christian um, because of what he's done and and the history he's made at Duke. Um, But he's not the most vocal guy. He's not the guy that's going to walk into a room and you'll hear right away. Neither is a guy like Grant Hill. Grant's not a a boisterous guy. He's talkative, but he's not boisterous. Um, But there are, Kenny Denard is probably a guy that would jump out at me as the guy who, because he's older than all of us, played on Coach K's first team with Gene Banks and Spinarco. He's got, he's he's larger than life, literally and figuratively. Um, And he's everywhere. He was at the uh, Duke Carolina game where about 25 of us got to go back on March 7th. Um, so he he would probably be, the one. I know that's not the answer you're looking for, but I think we all, when we get together, we all recognize another guy I'm thinking of is Shane Battier, who's a great, mm. doesn't say much. Mike Dunleavy, doesn't say much. <laughs> um, not a lot of them are loudmouthed like, uh, like Denard and I. So
0: when you, when you get to the league, drafted by the Blazers and you know that you know coming off going to the finals then you go back to the finals or back to the conference finals should say losing to the Lakers you had a bunch of vets on that team Buck Williams Clyde Drexler Walter Davis on that team Danny Ainge on that team Terry Porter's on that team who was your vet
1: my my vet was Danny Ainge he sat next to me in locker rooms he sat next to me on the plane um and in retrospect now man i was thinking think how lucky i was yeah (laughs) right to to a guy who is just so smart um level-headed um he wasn't all over the place he liked to talk like me so there were times when if i if i was in the mood to really grill him or pepper him with questions he was receptive and he would answer them there's a lot of things that he said um that still stick with me um do your fishing in the same pond. <laughs> it was one that he would always say because, you know, Danny was a good, faithful Mormon and he was mm-hmm. devoted to his wife and his family. And he's watching this 22 year old, first year in the league, kind of marveling <laughs> at the attention he's getting. So when we'd get off of buses and planes, he'd always say to me, Do your fishing in the same pond. I knew exactly what he meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now it was those kind of nuggets. I'll give you a great Danny story. It's my second year. And I can tell that unlike my first year, I'm in the rotation. I'm going to play as long as I don't kill, screw up and kill us. I'm going to play. And we're playing our last preseason game in market square arena against the, uh, the Pacers. And I played well, I think I might've had like 23 or 24. But what I, what I remember is dunking on Rick Smith right down the middle of the lane on the fast break. So Ooh. After the game's over, the locker room, there's a gaggle of reporters waiting to talk to me. And I come out of the shower. Again, Ainge is right next to me. And he sees all the reporters waiting for me. And he yells across the room to Clyde, hey, Clyde, just tell me if I'm wrong. But they don't collect and and record any of the preseason stats, do they? (laughs) (laughs) And Clyde goes, nope, never have, never will. So he leaves so Danny leans over to the reporters and goes, "I'll give you guys five minutes before you waste any more of my time." <laughs> and I just remember thinking, "Like, dude, don't rain on my parade right, right. now!" Like, right. like, <laughs> they, like I know they don't keep score, but this is for my own like well-being. Like, I know I can do this. I know I belong. It's affirmation. It's validation. <laughs> Dan wasn't trying to have any of that. Dan was trying to knock me down, and what I was his point was whether you play well or bad, it's all about the next day. That's what the league's about. And, yeah, he was trying to put me in, this, in my place, too, which I really dug. Maybe not so much at the time.
2: <laughs> what were – I mean, that backcourt, Danny Ainge, Drexler, Drazen, Terry Porter, what was it like in practice with those, with those backcourt guys going at it?
1: Well, full full disclosure, we didn't really go that hard in practice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm gonna just put it out there right now with guys like Clyde and Terry and and Buck in the minutes and the years, um, they were not gonna get um, up early, come into practice, and go hard. They were they were vets in every sense of the word in that um, they gave it to you when you needed it. You know, the Buck, Buck was amazing in that. I never saw Buck or Clyde ever go and work on the treadmill or the elliptical, Or, but I also never saw them tired or huffing or out of breath or looking like they may have been dragging a little. They did their work quietly on their own. You know, now you got kids who take videotapes of, of uh, their workouts in the summer and they put it on YouTube and all that. These guys were a little different ilk.
0: Practice or no practice, you guys start that season 19 and 1, feeling pretty invincible at that point?
1: Well, what was great was, and this is part of just how lucky I I was overall, winning is a beautiful thing. Even when you're not playing a lot, it's better than the alternative because the alternative starts creating, you know, different factions. You start breaking up into little groups and guys start maybe mistrusting each other. You're not, it's definitely not as happy an environment as it is when you're winning so to come walking into that i kind of knew how lucky i was but not to the extent because later on you get on teams that aren't as successful and you realize oh man, this is what it, this is what the normal people uh have to go through we were lucky in portland we felt invincible but at the same time uh we we, we knew that we were still like scratching the surface in other words like i saw guys like play Hard, but not hard all the time. What I mean by that is it's hard to bring it 48 minutes every night. What we did was we did it collectively. We were able to, over the 48-minute period, play harder than the other guys. But there were times when I saw, for instance, um, a Buck Williams where he didn't get the ball a lot. You know, it's not, his, it's not his time or his not his matchup. So Buck would just defend and rebound and never say a word. Um, that impressed me because I, what I saw was guys sacrificing of themselves because all they wanted to do was win. you got to remember, Buck played in New Jersey forever. Mm-hmm. And they really didn't do much. So you send them to a team that's pretty close to doing something. They lose to the Pistons the year before. Yeah, they were, they were chomping at the bit and for good reason. They, they knew they weren't far away.
0: Yeah, I think Buck's still the Nets franchise all-time leading rebounder. Adam mentioned it before, mentioned Drossen being on that team. What was he like as a kid?
1: Well, I can tell you, I knew draws from 1988. We somehow, Coach K, I don't know how he did it, but pr- prior to the Olympics, we got us a three-week trip out to Greece and Spain, and we played all of the European Olympic teams right before they went over to, I think it was Seoul back then. Uh-huh. Um, so we're talking about a unified Soviet Union with Marshalonis and with uh, Savonis and with Volkov. We're talking about a unified Yugoslav team, a team that Tony Kukoc didn't even play on. It was Zarko Paspai, it was Dragan Petrovic, it was Dino Raja, um, Vladi. It was all these guys. Kukoc was like the, you know, the, like the sixth or seventh man. Um, and I don't know how on earth Coach K got the Duke team in the middle of all that, but somehow <laughs> we were we were there for three weeks to play all these teams and. We had a banquet in Greece in Athens on the night of the opening of the tournament and all the teams are going to be there. We were on top of the roof. It was a pool on top of it. It was beautiful. And we were going to be up on there for like a little banquet and just introduction and cocktail hour, so to speak. The hotel has 12 floors. It was a spiral staircase that led all the way up to the elevator if you didn't want to take the escalator, up, up to the roof if you didn't want to take the elevator. And that was completely full of fans that were coming to see guys just as they came off the elevator and walked out to the pool. Well, guys would come out and they would cheer. Now, you got to remember, if you're on the floor below us and anything below, you're not seeing who's coming out of the elevator. You're just hearing it as a rumor. And everything changed. The, ele- the hotel shook when Drazen got out of the elevator. Wow. They went absolutely berserk for him. No one else. And there were other teams, like I said, Barcelona's and those guys were there, but nobody could touch Draž and the following and the fan base that he has. So when, fast forward to Portland when him and I weren't playing in 1990 and we'd be sad on the bench, I would tell him that story because he didn't know who I was a Duke at the time, but I knew who he was. And I would say to him, you're going to have your day one day, man. People, they don't know you're the king of Zagreb. And I used to just try to get him to feel a little bit better because it was – killing him that he'd come all the way over here and didn't get a chance to play. So needless to say, when he gets to Jersey and does his thing, I was probably the, one of the first people to be happy for him.
2: That is pretty awesome. In, in your second year in Portland, you finally get your first start uh, as an NBA player. And it's against the Pistons who are right in the middle of their heyday. It's Rodman, Isaiah, Dumars, Lambeer. And you go off for 20 and 11, and you took 21 shots. What do you remember about your first NBA start?
1: <laughs> well, what's funny is you say 21 shots, and I knew I had 21 shots. And because um, I'll tell you two stories about that that, you're, that are incredible. Buck Williams first. The reason why I started was because Buck's mom had passed, and he had to go back to Rocky Mount, North Carolina, for the wake and the funeral. So that was the reason why I get to, I got to start. and since I was the next one in the rotation and been playing a backup all year. Anyway, it made sense. So here I am and I got to go up against Rodman. But the 21 shots is the first thing Buck said to me when he came (laughs) back. He said to me, how the hell did I don't get 21 shots in a week. How did you, you know, and, 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 and I get it because here I am, I'm a second year guy. He's been in the league 11 years. He has more respect than I have, and rightfully so. He's earned it. But I moved, and I was just playing off of Clyde and Terry. And if you can play off of those guys, you're going to get the ball. You know, who are they going to double team, me or Clyde? They're going to double team <laughs> Clyde. So I would just roll with my hands up, and I got spoon fed all night. That's all. So the second great story is I played 38 minutes that night. I ain't never played that many minutes in my life. Not even, I think maybe once or twice in college. And Rodman's the kind of guy that works you. He's running every time down the floor. He's jumping three, four times for a rebound. So he's going to tax you. After the game, I go into the locker room. The great Mike Shaminsky was our trainer at the time. Um, I go in the locker room, and I'm listening. he goes, what do you need? I go, I need ice bags from head to toe, man. So I sit on the training table. I've got my back. I'm leaning down, knees bent, and I'm sitting on the training table, and he's just plopping one ice bag. I'm pointing to things, you know, like, here, put it here, put it here, put it here. And as he's putting them on, in comes Rodman, who at the same night played all 48 minutes, if you look at the, at the box score. He didn't come out of the game. And he comes over to shaminsky whispers in his ear. Mike's like, "Absolutely." And then I—I he, I, I didn't hear it. And then he walks in the room, so in the back room. And I go, "Mike, Mike, what do you what do you want?" He goes, "Well, he said." And I quote, "I didn't get enough of a workout in. Could I use your treadmill for a little bit?" <laughs> right. So now hold on. There's more. So now you ice for what twenty twenty five minutes? You're supposed to, the minimum. You're supposed to ice for so. We know I'm in there for at least 20, 25 minutes. I get all the ice off of me. I'm ready to go, you know, take a shower and get in the car and head home. I lean over because I can't resist it. I'm curious. I look over, and he's got it on an incline, and he's at a full sprint, going on his toes, going so hard. And I remember leaning back, and you know how you just – you get. When you when you sense like something's eerie or scary or otherworldly. I just remember walking back away from the room, going, Nah, that's I'll I'll never be like that. I, that that's otherworldly. Like he he and I'm looking at the box score, like yeah, forty eight. He, I'm he definitely because I don't remember him coming out. And the dude's and- in there right now, running for his life in there. Yeah, I've got to get back in the gym and start working on my stuff. Wow. And Rodman went
2: for 20 and 25 that night.
1: Yeah, it was incredible. It was incredible. And the reason, (laughs) again, uh, full disclosure, the reason why I got the rebounds I got is because I had to chase them down because he was going after them. So there were times I would just go after because I was trying to box him out and prevent him from getting it. But he would take me to the ball. There was a time, I'll give it again, there was a time. I'm in Boston. It's my first year there, my third year in the league, and I, I I went crazy the first quarter. I had 16 points against the Pistons. And they've had Grant Long on me, and then they put Buddha on me. And then Rodman comes in and he comes in off the off the bench and he's like, Man, you are doing a hell of a job. And I just remember thinking, like, you're the who said that? <laughs> In the middle of the game, like who's saying? Like, it was just had yeah, none, none of this. Like you know, I'm going to show you. I'm I'm stopping you. I'm putting a halt to this. None of that. He just comes walking in the game. He's like, man, you are doing a hell of a job. And I'm like, you are different, man. <laughs> There's not a lot of people that would have said that.
0: All right. So so that game that Adam just referenced your 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 first start the when Robin played 48, that was the front end of a back to back for Detroit because the next night Robin played 48. And he had crazy. 13 points and 18 rebounds. The next night, he played 48.
1: It's crazy. It's crazy. With the running in between, mind you.
0: Right. Right. So back-to-back back, back to back 48 nights with the running in between. And then he had day off. Now I'm looking at Robin's game log. Day off, then home for Denver, plays 45 minutes with 13 and 20.
1: It didn't make
2: sense. He was super. Plus, if you recall, he played the whole game on his toes. I'm sure he finishes at the treadmill and goes and parties all night, too. Like, that wasn't um, the end of Rodman's night. No, no. I'm sure there was a a few beverages,
1: libations in his future somewhere.
0: Yeah, but don't (laughs) pretend like you didn't have a few after
1: that start. No, no, I absolutely did. Uh, How do you – listen, ice doesn't work that well by itself. (laughs) 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 Um, Boston, that was was
0: a – an interesting group of guys that that you played with there.
1: I loved it, man, because we had we had we had some heroes. First of all, we had Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale.
2: Right. Okay. So, you,
1: and I walk in the first day I get traded. It was on game night. Uh, they happen to be playing, I believe, the Heat. And I walk in the locker room, and my locker is on the corner, and right next to me is Chief, and right next to him is McHale. So I'm thinking. This had to be Larry Bird's locker because it's on the corner. It's the first one to exit to leave. And, like, who else would be here next to these two Giants? You know, it had to be Larry. So, make a long story short, it wound up being Larry's. But I'll tell you a great story. I'm sitting next to Chief because his locker, like I said, was right next to mine. He used to get paid uh, with a physical check every 1st and 15th. So the accountant comes walking into the locker room. This is game night. It's about maybe 6.30 for a 7.30 game. And the gentleman from the accounting office gives him his envelope, his check for that week, for, that, for those two weeks. He was making four million billion that year for some context. And he puts it in his sock and looks at me and says, don't let me forget this. I go, okay, no problem. I, I didn't know what he was going to do with it. I just – so I go get taped. I come back. He's still sitting in the locker room. Oh, he's in the locker but he's standing. So I said, Chief, don't forget what's in your sock.
2: He's like, oh, yeah,
1: yeah. He used to call me abracadabra. He didn't – he never <laughs> called me Abby. He called me abracadabra. <laughs> so he said, abracadabra, thank you. Ha, <laughs> ha. Then wound up not taking it out, played the whole game with the check in his sock, after the game, he's taking his sock off. Just pieces of paper, random paper, just start falling out. Like it's just, it's falling to pieces. It's disintegrated. And all I hear is, "Oh shit! What? What?" He goes, "Man, that was four hundred fifty thousand dollars. I just made fall apart."
2: Oh, that's incredible. And, and,
1: I, and, and I just and I just remember going. I don't know if I should feel sorry for you, if I should, you know, <laughs> reprimand you or your chief. Like, what do you like? What do you say to him? You're like, and then he says to me, I'll get him to print up another one for me. No big deal. <laughs> how, how did that not bother
0: him during a game? Playing with a how check you in your stuff. How did you forget
1: stock? about a half a million dollars in your shoe? Yeah. <laughs> That's what I want to know. But half a I'll tell you what, to spend, to spend, like we sat next to each other on the plane, him and... I and just to spend time with him, you know. We I was the power forward, he was the center. We would start together. We, you know, there were plenty of times on the floor he covered my my butt backside when I would make a mistake, and he'd block a shot um, and cover me. Um, and it was just such it was an honor. It was an honor to be with him. I was thrilled that he even knew who I was, let alone would call me up and want to go hang out on Newberry Street and grab some drinks and look at the pretty girls he was single at the time how do you say no when chief calls you to invite you to do anything yeah, um, yeah mm-hmm. chief was and then you know then we'll talk about Reggie Lewis who got arrested so was probably the best of them all
2: but but right before i get to that i do want to ask you what what did those guys tell you what was the best larry bird story that they told you oh well there's
1: countless ones but i have i have a good one in phoenix um they're on the road. I think it's like tied at 145, three seconds left, and uh, Casey Jones calls a timeout, and he's drawing up a play, and the plays, I think it goes to DJ or something like that. And as they're coming out of the huddle, Larry says, F everything he just says. I'm going to be in the corner. Make sure you get me the ball. So as yeah. he goes to the corner, it was right in front of the, the Suns bench in the old Memorial Coliseum. I think Cotton Fitzsimmons may have been the coach even. Um, as he's walking to the corner where he's going to spot up for the play, he tells the Suns guys, I'm sending you all home from here. Grab your stuff. We're, it, it, the game's over. If I get it from here, it's over. So now everybody knows. Inbound, sure enough, the ball gets to the corner. Larry hoists up the shot. The ball's in midair. I've seen the video since. He, when the ball's in midair, he's already behind the stanchion of the basket waving the rest of the Suns on. Like, come on, guys. I told you it was over. The <laughs> ball goes in, and he's already in the tunnel.
0: Okay, it was crazy. I mean, it's just, it's well, hold hey, just... Wait, wait. What's, what's Casey Jones doing drawing up a play with the game on the line for DJ and not Larry in the I first think,
1: place? I, I think yeah. DJ might have been hot. Okay. I, you know what I mean? But uh, you got to remember. I think DJ – didn't DJ play for the Suns? Too? No, he was a supersonic. Seattle, yeah. But, uh, yeah. yeah, but I, who, who knows why he called a play? Another great one, Mikhail told me, was – they're in Detroit, and I think Mikhail has, like, 54. And they're beating the Pistons. The game's over, and Larry just keeps on feeding it to Kevin. Like, he comes down the floor. That was it, Larry. Larry would look for his own shot, too. But he kept on force feeding it, and Mikhail looks at him at a timeout and goes, dude, I'm beat, man. Like, you know, I don't even know how many points I have, but I'm exhausted. Like, pass it to somebody else. And Larry says to him, no, man, I want you to get 60 because I'm getting 60 next week.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that one, yeah, he did, right, because Ke- McHale set the 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 franchise scoring record that night, and exactly right, and then Bird broke it the next week. Yeah,
1: well, yeah, because the record so lasted like twenty years, and then it lasted a right. week. Right. right, it's so great. <laughs> so I great love that he so helped awesome. him get the
2: record up even higher. Right. Ah, it's it's yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It's Who thinks of that? And the next oh. week, I'm gonna get it. Who says that?
2: That's so great. Now I'm the now i da-
1: now, now I'm daydreaming
0: the- about Newberry Street and Daisy Buchanan's. Was uh-huh. Daisy's around then?
1: That's exactly where we would go. Chow fellas, is daisy Buchanan. you can. That's awesome. Yeah, those are good times. But yeah, yeah, we'll 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 leave it at that. Good time.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, that was a, that was that was yeah, that was one of our spots in college when I was at BU. But now How Daisy's uh, yeah, Daisy's is closed now. Yeah, Daisy's no longer exists. Yeah. Yeah. Just in just in our fond memories. You brought up <laughs> Reggie Lewis. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Let's let's uh-huh. we'll, we'll we'll get back to laughing in a moment. You brought up Reggie Lewis. This is a month after Drazen dies. Yeah. So, so you're you're Drazin you're Drazin's teammate, and you know Drazin for for all those years, and so I'm sure you're still dealing with that when Reggie when Reggie Lewis dies. How would you process it all?
1: Well, um, I, I don't think I've ever really told too many people publicly this. Um, the day he was. Um, well, the day when he fell and wound up inevitably dying, um, he was at Brandeis, mm-hmm. where they found him just shooting around, and then he collapsed, and that's where they took him. Well, he was supposed to come speak to my basketball camp up in New Hampshire the next day. So mm. I, was, I had come down to Boston because my back was hurting me at the time, so I went to do some therapy, and then I was going to meet him at Brandeis. And take him up with me, spend the days, have him speak to the kids, and then send him back down that afternoon. I had left the camp that morning and told everybody that I was coming back with the captain of the Celtics the next day. Mm. Um, and then I pull up to Brandeis and I see an ambulance. I, I don't know at the time it's the ambulance, but I see an ambulance pulling away as I'm pulling up. And I see a lot of people that I, Some I recognized as the athletes who used to come and work out in the area of the campus where we would also share with them. But there were some people I just didn't know. And they were all crying or at the very least had a look of concern on their face. And I just walked up very confused and was trying to walk by them because I'm thinking Reggie's inside with me. Like, I don't know what these people's problem is. I hope it gets solved, but it doesn't involve me. And as I walk in, I hear that was Reggie. And I turned on like on a pivot. It was like, Reggie, who? And she said, Reggie Lewis. And I just remember asking, Reggie's in that ambulance. And they're like, yeah. And because I can't run lights, um, I found out where they were going. And by the time I got there, he had passed. Oh. Um, and then uh, I just remember, you know, leaving the hospital, going back to the camp, and then having to tell all the campers the next day that Reggie wasn't going to be there. Um, that was, yeah, that was not good. That was a bad day. What, what were the what were the ensuing days like with the organization? Uh, it was, well, you know, like I remember people saying, you know, or the doctors saying, like, you know, there was cocaine involved. I can tell you, Reggie was my road dog. When our bag hit the floor on the road, one of us was calling the other one saying, what are we doing? Where are we going? And never in any of the plans was there any mention of cocaine.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I never saw him do it. I never saw him talk about it. Never saw him, you know, if the subject came up, I never saw him elaborate on it. it and nothing, nothing. Um, it just seemed like a dirty, cheap shot being taken by some of the doctors to kind of cover their own asses. I just knew the Reggie who picked me up when I first got to Boston. And I'm like, where are you taking me, man? Because I don't, you know, I I don't know Reggie, you know, but he took it upon himself to welcome the new guy. And where did we go? He took me to the Boston pops and I met John Williams (laughs) for the first (laughs) time. Yeah. The first night I'm in Boston. And I'm like, I didn't expect this from you, Red, but this kind of says a lot about who you are. Like he sent me some, I had braces at the time. I went to his dentist. He helped me out with furniture moving in. Reggie and Donna were just great. And you know, I still miss him. I miss Draws a lot. Um, and I miss Reggie,
2: you know, just as much. Yeah. Oh. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for Sorry, sharing Sorry, man. I didn't mean to bring everybody No, no no, 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 I, w- I, w- w- I wouldn't way. have asked. But I expected I, I actually and I and I we both appreciate you sharing that story. Thank you. That's I know how difficult that is. We, um, we want to do some quick hits with you. Bring the podcast back up a little bit as, <laughs> as, as we do. Um, NBA finals against the Bulls, the shrug game. What are your memories?
1: Um. Well, what I remember saying a lot was, come on, Clyde. Um,
2: because,
1: <laughs> <laughs> because he was killing him, but it wasn't Clyde's fault. I remember vividly the scouting report was take everything else away and give him the jumpers. Mm-hmm. That was Michael back in 1992. You you know you had to pick your poison, and for us we wanted to take away momentum plays being at Chicago Stadium. We didn't want to take the crowd into it, so let him just shoot the threes. We didn't realize that he was rolling until about seven threes later. Um, yeah, what do you have, 35 in the first half. That's a game they continue to show um, on, you know, classic basketball. And I just remember a feeling of helplessness because it was like watching, you know, a train coming at you, but yet you're tied to the track and you can't move and get out of the way. Um, yeah, that's what it felt like. Because if you're taking away his weakness, the thing that, you know, you're banking on, um, him not being able to do, and yet he kills you with it. You really are left with no recourse.
0: What's the wildest thing you ever heard him say to somebody on the court?
1: Uh, well, I can tell you this. I, I've known Michael for a while, and I've been off the floor with him uh, in the off season with him a number of times. And there's a camp that he has that we used to go to, called Achievements Unlimited. His buddy Fred Whitfield runs it. Yeah, sure. Fred is now the president of. The charlotte hornets but back then uh, fred was a lawyer in north carolina and that's how our paths crossed so when i was in college i remember going to play in this game at the end uh, there's a like a the camp and then at the end of the camp there's a game and a barbecue and the game is called the greatest pickup game in the world because guys like michael play in it but also everybody who's been in, in the acc uh, in that area, because the game's uh, either played in Charlotte or Greensboro. So you get the Georgia Tech guys, the Clemson guys, Kenny Anderson played in it, Dennis Scott played in it. It makes for a great competition. Well, the one year I'm there, I was there a number of years, but this one year, Michael's on my team and we're playing in this pickup game. It's just a pickup game. It's not, it's not, <laughs> there's no records being kept. The NBA is not sponsoring this. It's just a pickup game among friends. And Kendall Gill. I guess maybe started to rub Mike the wrong way. Plus, he had like 36 in the first half. <laughs> and we come into the locker room, and it's just a small little high school gym. It might even have been a junior high school gym. You know, the little locker rooms. It's small. And we're all in there, and MJ's the last one in. And he slams the door, and he starts to go bonkers. If you dudes don't want to play in this game, let me know. <laughs> we are not here to... I mean, he just went, and, then he, and then it was like the pep talk. It was like what a coach would say to you. And he went out there. I mean, his eyes, he had, the, he had the killer look, like it was game time. He had that killer look, and he just proceeded to just dismantle my man and the rest of the team. He went after everybody. He went after i never seen anything like it, and I just remember thinking – um, it's summertime for some of us, but some of us, it's not so much. Yeah, right. You know, Kendall Gill, Kendall Gill did not have a good time at that barbecue after
2: that.
1: <laughs> 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 because that's the other thing is, like, I'm thinking, well, we all got to get along in a little bit because we're going to have some ribs and some chicken a little bit. Mike didn't care about that. Mike was like, we're here to, we're here to kill. And that was, yeah, that was how he was. So that's part of the reason why he is who he is. You ever get into a fight in
0: practice in the league, Alan?
1: Uh, X-Man, every day for a month when I first got to Boston because <laughs> he didn't want to give up his spot. What happened was Kevin Gamble had beaten him out of the three spot, and then when Pinkney went down, he moved over to the four spots. Even though he was undersized, it was better than not playing. So X-Man, when I get there, is the starting four man, but it's just a matter of time because they're really trying to get me in there he didn't get that memo so (laughs) every day in practice if i had a good practice to get under his skin a little bit it didn't matter if i did anything to him he would just start a fight
0: like punches thrown
1: oh yeah absolutely punches thrown practice would stop the whole nine yeah like you know guys would be like oh no not again you too (laughs) because it literally i I think it might have happened 20 times We fought all the that now we're we're the best of friends, but back then, and I get it, you know i he didn't he wasn't going to just relinquish the
2: spot to me. he wanted to make sure that I was worthy of it, and I got it. I understood it. I just have one more quick hitter, and that is I think Billy King, I know it's your old teammate. I've heard you guys might have even been roommates or something. What was the one g m move that he made that you went, really, Billy, really? Uh
1: sign in Dallin to that big money.
2: Yeah, a lot of money.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I knew Sam from his days at Seton Hall because Tommy was his head coach. So oh, I yeah. I'd been on that campus working out with Sam a lot, trying to get his footwork down, just trying to you know, he's a freshman. It was him, Marcus Tony L, um, Eddie Griffin. Eddie Griffin it was a heck, right. of, a, it was a heck of it Tony, was a heck of a class. Ed. So I remember Tommy calling me up and saying, like, Hey, listen, would you mind just working with the big fellow a little bit? And you get a sense of people, you know, when you're around them, especially when you're pushing them and when you're making them do things that they might not prefer to do. And I just never sensed Sam's love for the game. Mm -hmm. I think Sam was a big guy in a big body and figured out this is what big guys probably should do. (laughs) Um, But I didn't sense that love for the game. So when he signed him, I was like, well, I hope he saves his money
0: yeah I think and Down Downbear was a pretty bright guy, too I remember reading the story once about how he used to like take computers apart, put them back together, and he like built a like a helicopter to fly around his home while he was yeah, on no, the road, for kid, surveillance and kid. stuff yeah yeah I, I just can't kid, I can't yeah, believe brother. you didn't say I can't believe you didn't say that taking Larry Hughes over Paul Pierce because i I still don't forgive Billy King for that, but Billy King blames Larry Brown for that, so
1: who knows Well, who's but you know what feathers. though. Like I look at like from my position now, I look at GMs. Noah, as much as I know about basketball, I don't think I could do that job. The idea that you have to bring it um, on a certain level, um, it has to be consistent. And then, how can you guarantee you're gonna know what's in some guy's heart? Because that's what you're you're gambling on. Is this is this guy motivated enough to be as great as we think he's gonna be? And it doesn't, guys don't always turn out that way. That's why I'd have a hard time doing that job because I don't think it's just about ability. I think you, your motor um, is something that is, uh, is immeasurable at times and it's hard to detect.
0: All right, last one for you, Ali. It's the Rejecting the Screen podcast. So we always ask our guests the final question is, in a Game 7 situation, and you can't say Jordan, who are you <laughs> choosing from your teammates, from guys that you've played with, Ooh. to reject the screen, go ISO, get a bucket?
1: That's a good one, Reggie
0: Lewis. Good answer. I
1: love Reggie it. Good answer. Lewis. Good answer. Sweet, uh, sweet shooting, Reggie Lewis. I used to call him that, and he used to love it. Sweet shooting. All right, he is Ala Abdulnabi,
0: nabi Sixers TV analyst. And next time we have mom, we'll ask him, who should the Sixers trade, Ben Simmons or Joel Embiid?
1: am <laughs> <I'm> just kidding.
0: <laughs> uh, we, we appreciate it. Thanks so much, pal.
1: Adam, Noah, great to be with you guys. All the best.
0: All right, so he's got some stories. And there's a guy that
2: (laughs) had a,
1: he had a a, a great Duke career.
0: Uh huh. Shot 60% from the floor over his years at Duke at five years in the NBA. That's it. Five years. And so from the outside, many may look at that and like, yeah, what could that guy tell you? You know, he's only spent five years in the league. He's, he's such a good dude. And he had such a great career at Duke. You you can tell how great of a guy he is who because he barely played a handful of games to the Sixers at the very end of his career. And oftentimes analyst jobs, studio jobs go to guys who, you know, spend a good amount of time with that team. And he's the Sixers yep. TV analyst.
2: It says everything you need to know about his personality and his his wit, his intelligence. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he and also, by the way, he was involved in a lot of winning culture. I mean, I brought up the point about the four straight seasons with uh, a Duke team that lost to the eventual national champion, a runner up, but also first year in the league, Blazers lose Western conference finals to the Lakers. That's the 91 NBA finals. And then he loses in the NBA finals to the Chicago bulls. And then as we talked about plays for a Celtics team, which obviously that core of bird, McHale parish was starting to fade away and you know, bird wasn't there any longer, but like, this guy was around winning and winning culture and the amount of stories and the fact that again, he's he's transparent and he's willing to be candid with us and open up. It's uh, It's been one of the really cool parts about this podcast. All the things I've always wanted to ask the guys that were in the locker room, we're finally getting a chance to ask these guys. Yeah, I've known Al for a long
0: time going back this is close to 15 years, I guess, and and he makes you feel like even if you know we stay in touch, we text, we'll see each other at games during the year when the Sixers are the Garden or Barclays. And he always makes you feel like he just saw you. Mm-hmm. You've known each other since birth. It's a it's a big hug. It's a what's up, let's talk. Always makes the time. He makes you feel special and it's a and it's a genuine thing. It's not. It's, he's not putting on airs ever, so I've all, I've always appreciated that as from Allah as a person. Aside from you know what he did on the floor in college and in the pros. All right, so as yeah. we record this, this is Monday. This will be yeah. out at some point over the next two weeks. Mm-hmm. Right before we went on, mm-hmm. got a phone call from your wife Kate, and the end of that call was. Yeah, we're gonna induce tomorrow, and then and then you said, "All right, let's roll," like on on the podcast. <laughs> There's all, all this stuff, all this stuff going on in in our worlds, work wise, the world itself, and as we record this now, this is mm-hmm. early evening on Eastern time on Monday. You're gonna have your,
2: your fourth child tomorrow, most likely. Yeah, my, my world's about to, to change, as if we haven't gotten enough change anyway. I don't, I've, I've described this, though, to people, Noah. I'll just say this. When stuff gets chaotic around me, and I think that's why I've been, I don't know, somewhat successful as a, as a TV producer throughout my career or what have you. Sports are kind of, when, when stuff just gets crazy, like there's this weird thing inside of me where a switch goes off. And look, you're on air. You sort of understand. Like, I, I like feel calmer. Like, I almost can just relax in these moments. Like, it's, and I don't know what it is. So when stuff gets wild and crazy, like having a fourth child in the midst of a pandemic, like, you know, all the fear and anxiety at the hospital, I guess maybe there's some place that I'm compartmentalizing that in the back of my brain, but I'm able to still say, all right, well, let's do what we got to do. And that's what we're about to do tomorrow. So the next time that we speak and who knows based on when we're putting these out and when people are hearing this, but, uh, yeah, uh, my life's going to be even more chaotic, but we'll keep you doing, keep doing rejecting the screen podcast. I can tell you that much for sure. Are you sure? I mean, you're <laughs> well, going to actually, have, you're <laughs> going to have a fourth kid. I don't know. Actually, that's a, that's a really good point. Let me come up. With, listen, the clock is now ticking when I got to run back with my wife and we got to figure out a name real quick with <laughs> the clock. Yeah. yeah, real, ticking.
0: yeah let, me, let me, let me, let me, let me grab a name real quick and, uh, get something to drink out of the fridge and uh, I'll call you later. I mean, yes, <laughs>
2: that's, that's pretty much it. it. That's pretty much that's it though. Casually, That's the crazy part. Uh, but it's been that's fun to right. go on this journey with you and I'm excited for, uh, for people now we're talking to hear about all the about, about it. Podcast,
0: not, not the parenting thing. Of now course. We're, now we're of course. About yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just the pop itself. I had nothing, I had nothing, as close as we are, I had nothing to do with uh, the birth of this child. <laughs> uh, I, had not, I had nothing to do with <laughs> All right, so, all my best to you guys. You're Appreciate right, it. as when when anybody hears this, I mean, the, yeah. your, your, the daughter, she could be having her bat mitzvah. Who knows? That's how evergreen mm-hmm. this content is. Someone could listen to it <laughs> and be like, oh, no idea when they recorded it. Oh, it was the day before... The unnamed daughter was born. It's pretty wild. (laughs) Make sure you go back and listen to all the Going ISO editions of Rejecting the Screen. It's real easy to find in the feed. Just go to the Rejecting the Screen podcast, and you can even do it on your home device, Google, Alexa. Just ask it to listen to Rejecting the Screen on Locked On or Locked On Rejecting the Screen. And you can find all the ones that say Going ISO and then the name, and that's the interview subject. Richard Jefferson, Sam Mitchell, Kevin Willis, Peter Vesey, a classic. Ryan Russillo was great. Mm. There are so, there's so many. And Sean Marion, most recently. Adam Morrison, if you're still laughing for that, recover. Then listen to any number of <laughs> all the other ones. And you can also follow Adam on Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C-O-S-L-O-V. On Instagram, I guess, at Rejecting there. underscore the underscore screen. Adam is... He does most of that. Now I feel like I'm gonna have to carry that weight. I'm, oh. I, I'm just get, I'm just getting a hold of the the audiograms. I'm getting the hang of those things.
2: Noah.
0: I don't know. Got I don't know about on. the I don't know about the Instagram stuff. Listen, I don't man,
2: you got enough going on in your life. Can we That's can we good. give that I'll, to I'll,
0: one of your teenage daughters to handle the ooh, Instagram account? Ooh.
2: Yeah. Yeah. They've often told me that uh my instagram stories are, are like too busy and too much color all that maybe i will um task them with that so do so you like, okay. tell one of them and tell say you guys want to get
0: out of changing diapers for four months <laughs> exactly you take <laughs> over you take over the instagram account
2: my wife's not allowing that they're okay they're, they're gonna right. be busy they're
0: doing both they're doing both all right locked on nba also hollinger and duncan every monday locked on Fantasy hoops and your team all the time nearly every day All 30 here on the Lockdown Podcast Network. Adam?
1: Thanks, pal. You are the best.